this congregation holds a very special place in my heart, and uh, we are essentially one family. Amen. One body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. And so I'm not a guest speaker when I come. I am part of the family. Amen. We're building one thing, one emphasis in the earth. And it's marvelous to be together with you once again. I want to share tonight just briefly on the favor of God as an expression of grace. So when you receive the grace of God, a particular effect that this has is that it will cause you to have favor. Everyone say favor. Now the Greek word translated in English as grace is charis. And the Hebrew word in the Old Testament is hen or chen. So both hen or chen and charis are synonymous with the whole idea of the favor of God. So anywhere in the Old Testament, except for a few places, or in the New Testament, when you read the favor of God, you can substitute there the grace of God. For example, it says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and men, or in grace with God and men. And one of the outcomes of grace is that when it's present, or when it's received, it will bring to the recipient favor. The favor of God upon you will be an impartation of his nature because his grace is the compositional makeup of his being as spirit. So when you receive that, you receive this God deposit in your being. That is very essential for you to have dominion in the earth and to have upon your life preference. Everyone say preference. Some terms that are synonymous with favor are preference or special treatment or preferential treatment where people or unfair advantage, people start to like you, right? And they start to give you uh, benefits or favor because of the outworking of the grace of God in your life, okay? Now, God has programmed all of the creation with his favor. <clears throat> all of creation has got the DNA locked up within it of the favor of God ready to respond to the Son of God who is full of grace, right? So in Genesis 1, where God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and God said to man, have dominion in the earth, replenish it, be fruitful, and multiply. That dominion, everyone say dominion. dominion. That dominion was not given to man generally. It was given to man so long as man maintains the image and the likeness of God, right? So in the image and the likeness of God was all, were all men created. So when God gave dominion to man, it wasn't given to man per se. It was given to the image and the likeness of God in man, okay? The image and the likeness of God in man. 
And so once Adam disconnected from God, his father, through the original sin, he lost image and he lost likeness. So then he will lose dominion. Dominion is given to you so long as you maintain the representation of the image and the likeness of God. Now, grace is the most amazing thing because quintessentially it's defined as the compositional makeup of God as a spirit being. So if you, the son of God, receive grace, you're not receiving a concept, you're receiving a person. So the recipient of grace is endowed with the very essence or the composition that makes up or comprises God as a spirit being. God has ensured that all of the earth will respond to his image in men. So what is creation waiting for now? All of creation is groaning for the manifestation of the, the sons of God. Creation will heal itself when sons of God come to maturity in the earth. Okay? Now, when the, the, the image and the likeness of God is restored in man as a result of the reception of the grace of God, you must please understand this. One of the clearest objectives of grace is the manifestation of glory. So John 1, 1 would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and the word dwelt amongst us and we beheld what come on what did we look at it says we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of what full of grace and truth so if you have glory what must glory be full of grace and truth a glory that is a glory not full of grace is no glory at all hmm? so the glory, the, the Greek word doxa, is the exact representation of God. When God displays His glory, God displays His exact nature or His exact representation. Are you with me? Right? Hebrews 1.3 quickly. Hebrews 1.3 quickly. Who being, this is the Lord Jesus, who being the brightness of His glory... And the express, can we have NASB? And the express image, remember image and likeness? The NASB says the exact representation of his being or his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, etc. Now, listen carefully. It says of the Lord Jesus that he is the express image or the express image of his father's person. The NASB says the exact representation of his nature. Okay? And he, is the, and he is the brightness of his glory. My point is this. We, make our, we have some weird thoughts about glory. But glory is nothing more than the exact representation of his nature. Right? It's, it's when a human being can visibly put on display... All of the essential attributes that are true of the Lord. If that is true, you, you see glory. And glory by definition has got to be apparent to and third party. 
an outside observer. What did John say? John said, we, we beheld, we witnessed, we saw his glory. Glory by definition has got to be seen. But the God with his spirit is unseen. So he's chosen to demonstrate his essential attributes, his glory, in and through a visible sun on the earth. That sun, like the Lord Jesus was, so it's true of every one of us. We must be too the brightness of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. But it said in John 14, we beheld his glory full of what? Full of grace and truth. So what is the objective of glory, of grace? By the way, grace comes via truth. Truth being the word of the Lord. What is the objective of grace? According to John 1, 16 and 14. It's to put the glory of God on display for men to see. When you put the glory or the essential uh, image or nature of God on display to see, guess what? God will give to his image in man dominion. Rulership and success is not given to man generally. It's given to the glory of God in men or the image of God in men. When that image is marred, nothing in creation will respond to the man. God has already programmed your success in creation. Your breakthrough is already programmed here. We often say, Lord, send the breakthrough, send prosperity. But it's here, it just needs a principle to activate it. It will gravitate toward you. One of the activating factors is if you can master glory and to master glory you need grace, right? I won't have time to explain this whole thing. It's a long teaching on the connection between grace and glory, right? Grace is the essential nature. It's the hypostasis that undergirds the display of the glory of God, right? It's the, it's the reality substruct to underneath upholding all of what the glory of God is to be visibly displayed. You will never ever get glory without grace. Right? And I want to encourage you when the glory of God is visibly displayed things in creation will gravitate towards the man. Now for example it is said of Cain. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 Verse 1 to 12. Now, in ASB, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain had an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So the Lord did not regard Abel's offering first without first regarding Abel. The man is accepted first before the man's offering is accepted. Notice the order. God respects or has regard for the man first before his offering. Your offering doesn't validate you. 
you validate your offering. Hmm? The wise men, when they came to give gifts to the young child Jesus, who was in the manger, remember? It says they came from the east. And you know what the Bible says? They bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their gifts and presented to him gold, incense, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts were not presented before the men presented themselves. Your gift cannot make room for you until you are first accepted by God yourself. Hmm? You don't believe me. <laughs> so the man's acceptance validates the offering's acceptance. I've seen many people give offerings and financial seeds that have got no power and no representation before the Lord because the offering is divorced from the heart of the giver of the, of the gift. Yeah? So the Lord has regard for Abel and his offering. Then the text says in verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. There's nothing wrong with Cain's giving of the, his produce of the field. Okay? Even if it wasn't his first fruit, because Abel offered a first fruit. The issue here is not what kind of offering the men were giving. The issue here is the state of the heart of the man that he's giving. Right? That the one's offering is accepted, the other offering is rejected. And the order is very clear here. God first has regard for Abel and his offering. But he has no regard for Cain and his offering. When the man is not accepted, no matter what you give to God, will be accepted. Hmm? So, then verse 6, sorry, verse, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Okay? Became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, God is still merciful to the man. He's saying, listen, from this point onwards, I haven't received you or your offering, but if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? God was being extremely merciful here. Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you, Cain, must master it. The image of sin crouching at the door in Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, it's the imagery of a predator. You know how they pray? How like a leopard would couch and lurk and pounce on an unsuspecting prey, unawares? God uses the same, check it out in the original Hebrew. God is saying to Cain, sin is crouching like a predator ready to master you, ready to grab you, Cain. You are about to enter into serious violation. You are offended at the fact that your brother's offering and person is accepted, but your person and offering is rejected. If you do well, if you turn now, you'll, your countenance will be lifted from the sadness. And Cain, be careful. Sin is about to master you, but you must master sin. Right? What destroys the image of God in men? Sin. Not so? The, the image of God in Cain is about to be marred and God is patient with this man and wants to give him 
a redemptive pathway. Right? And he's coaching him. Master the sin. Don't let the sin master you. Verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and did what? And killed him. Now watch. Um, the book of Genesis and 1 John prohibits murder on this basis. The basis upon which murder is not permitted is that all men were made in the image of God. Hmm? All men were made in the image of God. On that basis, murder is prohibited. It's, imp it's not permissible for one man to murder another. When one murders another, it shows not only disrespect and disregard for the individual. You are discounting and disregarding the image of God in the person. Right? So Cain kills Abel, showing dishonor even for God himself in the process. And the Bible says, look at the next verse, verse 9. The Lord God said to Cain, where is your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed where? Come on, you are cursed from the? Was he a farmer? Talk to me. Was he a man of the field? Yes. yes. So the realm of his operation becomes cursed because he violates image and likeness in brotherhood. I'm going to talk tonight about brotherhood. I'm going to demonstrate to you biblically from the scriptures a pathway to favor. A pathway to favor is brotherhood. But where you violate brotherhood, even the ground, it says you are cursed from the ground which, you have, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And verse 12, verse 12, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Now watch. The law of sowing and reaping, Genesis 8 says, will always persist so long as the earth remains. The law of sowing and reaping agriculturally was a principle that God put in the earth so that he would not have to watch over every time a seed is sown to ensure that that seed comes to productivity. God is not, he, he put laws in creation that allows him to go into rest. Right? God is working through the principles he has installed. I'm suggesting to us, there are already principles installed into the earth if which you activate from the position of maintaining image and likeness. The principle in the earth will recognize who you are and respond to you. But where you violate the principle, the ground doesn't even recognize Cain anymore. God says, now you try farm. You try sow your seed now, Cain. The ground will not respect you nor regard you. The ground will no longer yield its strength over to you because you violated image and likeness in you and in your brother, which you have murdered. And I want to encourage you.
The issue of sonship and maturity in sonship is so important. Because as we go in life, favor is going to be attracted to you. Because the entirety of creation will recognize who you are in the earth. And certain things you will not have to work for. The creation will recognize who you are. And when you engage the principle, you're going to activate the fullness of what that principle is designed by God to bring to you. But the moment you mar the image, not even agriculture will respect you. Hmm? I want to encourage you. Everyone say favor. You, you study all the, the, the examples of favor in the scripture. Men like Joseph functioned favorably. David. Even Noah. Right? Esther finds favor in the eyes of the king. You see men on the earth. Either consciously or unconsciously. Will even recognize that there's something different with you. And that you're functioning as a man or a woman of God. Even Daniel in Babylon, three times they say, does not the spirit of the living God reside in this man? And Daniel finds favor in, in, in political uh, arenas. Mary found favor in the sight of the Lord. The Bible says she was chosen to bear the, the Christ child. Not so. But I like the portion where it says that Mary... Mary was a virgin. So she was committed to the whole ideal of pristine personal purity. Right? She was committed to principles that maintain the image of God in her. Right? And the Lord visits her not just with favor, but the Bible says she was highly favored. She was also intensely committed to principles that govern covenantal relationships in the kingdom. Because the Bible says she was betrothed to, to, to Joseph. Betrothal, in other words, engaged. Hebrew uh, or Jewish engagement is not like our secular engagement. Their engagement was literally tantamount to a marriage. Right? It was so intense. It was literally very difficult to break it off, which Joseph contemplated. Right? But I like the idea where it says she was betrothed. That tells me Mary was not casual about relationships. She was very committed to the whole idea of relationships. And I want to talk to that tonight. I want to demonstrate to you, we use Cain as an example, right? I want to demonstrate to you from other examples in the scripture. How that when sons of God on the earth, watch, Maintain image and likeness in their being or any principle that maintains the, uh, and sustains the glory of God in them, particularly in reference to how they relate to other brothers, that that will position that son of God for unique and great favor. Your breakthrough, I'm suggesting to you, is, is going to lie in your attitude towards a brother. Your breakthrough is dependent upon the right attitude to a brother. So God asked Cain, where is your brother? And wrong positions toward a brother disqualified Cain. Hmm? Dangerous stuff this. Tell your neighbor, brothers are dangerous. 
Brothers can cause to, brothers can disqualify you if you're not careful. <laughs> Serious stuff. That's why Peter says, love the brotherhood. Yeah? I think it's Peter 2.17 or thereabouts. Love the brotherhood. The safest neighborhood to live in is the brotherhood. Right? It'll keep you, your, your, it'll keep you sane, pure, focused, and holy. I want to encourage you, don't entertain bitterness like Cain. Don't entertain any kind of tension in your relationships. Keep your spirit pure. Zechariah 8 verse 12 is a marvelous portion. It says the following, Zechariah 8 and verse 12. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all things. Notice here the imperative. The seed must have peace. Tell your neighbor the seed must have peace. Look at the text. There will be what for the seed? There will be peace for the seed. The same text in the contemporary English version says it like this. Your crops must be planted in peace. God's word version says peace of seeds will thrive in peacetime. Now many times the body of Christ is given to sowing seeds. For example, seeds have a, a vast array of representation or symbolic meaning in the Bible. Right? Like Christ is a seed. Not so? Not that Christ is a seed. Um, words are seeds. Remember the parable of the, of the seed and the and the sower and the seed that was the word of God, right? The word of God and all words generally. We're always sowing seeds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul likens financial giving as unto a, a seed, okay? Thoughts are seeds. So as I continue, based upon the scripture, what must be prevalent for any seed? Come on, talk to me. Peace. Everyone say peace. So long as seeds are sown within environments of peace, in other words, there's no tension, there's no bitterness, there's no disharmony, the environment is peaceful, that environment is the most conducive to allowing seeds to grow to maximum harvest. You can have the most great, the greatest seed in the wrong environment does not come to anything. Right? I want to encourage you, maintain your sense of peace relationally in any context that you, you find yourself in so that the favor on you, watch, the unfair advantage that God wants to bring to you, the unprecedented breakthrough that God desires to bring to you, the preferential treatment Right? Who likes preferential treatment? I do. Anyone? Right? The favor of God must be on me. But there are certain precipitators to favor. Certain things that activate the favor of God. I've seen many people lose favor because they position themselves inaccurately relationally towards people. And what was given to them is lost. Simply because they have not matured in terms of harnessing or activating the power of of, of, of peaceful relationships amongst brothers. 
You know, one of the, there are five expressions of maturity, five different terms for sonship in the Greek, right? Uh, from nepios, what's it? Nepios, neoniskos, uh, technon, pidon, or nepios, pidon. In the order of things, it's nepios, pidon, technon, neoniskos, and euios. Okay, I have a teaching that covers all of these things on my website. Right? It gives you descriptors of each phase in your growth in maturity. But you know what I discovered when I started studying the Uios son? Every verse in the New Testament that speaks about Uios, one that I really love was in Matthew, where, 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 the, where, where God, where Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, bless those that curse you. Pray for those that despitefully use you, right? And he says this, for then you will be sons, Uios, you will be sons of your Father or God Most High. God Most High, right? Sonship in maturity in that verse is demonstrated by the right attitude to everybody relationally, particularly enemies. Now, if you can't master an, a right biblical attitude towards enemies, what about the brother in the house? Hmm? Your maturity is demonstrated by the correct disposition, attitude towards every person relationally. Okay? Um, and it says you'll be sons of the Most High. That phrase, sons of the Most High, is rarely used in the, in the, in the New Testament. But it's used in this context for the Son of God that knows how to position himself properly relationally. You will be sons of the, of your father or sons of the, of the most high. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you in reference to these things. Now, a particular classic example then, let me start to give you the second example. We did the first example, which is Cain and, and Abel. So nothing in creation respects and responds to Cain. Because he violates the image of God in a brother. Right? The opposite then will be true. Right? If you preserve the image of God in a brother, everything will respond to you with, with blessing. Now, the first example is Abraham. Abraham. His nephew Lot tagged with him when he left Ur of the Chaldees. And he, and he positioned himself in the land of Canaan. Both men became exceedingly prosperous. I believe Lot was prosperous because of his connection to Abraham. A problem arose between their herdsmen. The problem was between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of, of Abraham. Both, um, the, they didn't have a problem. Notice the issue was between their herdsmen. But when Abraham approached Lot, to address the matter. Lot showed no inclination to resolve the matter amicably. If you read the text very, very carefully. And so Abraham said this to him. You know Lot, I have about 18 principles, 18 Lot principles. If you, if you decode Lot, and there's a lot of Lot in the church, right? And he goes, so many negative things going for him, right? 
um, he never esteems Abraham as father. He always calls him brother, or Abraham calls him brother. Abraham's name means high father. Not so? Exalted father. But he cannot see in Abraham how God has exalted the principle of father in Abraham. He was positioned to be a son, but he never ever positions himself properly in connection to, to Abraham. And the closest they ever came to was being described as brothers, not father and son. Now, you know, when you, when you equalize, or rather when you familiarize, you equalize. And what you equalize, you neutralize of grace. Abraham had the grace deposit to benefit Lot as a potential son. But Lot could not see him as a father. Lot could only view him as a brother. When you familiarize, when you put yourself equally in terms of rank as the other, you negate the possibility of grace transfer to you that the other has. And what subtly starts to happen, you quickly entertain any innocuous and innocent reason as an opportunity to disconnect because you don't value the relationship that much. The quarrel of the herdsman became the quarrel of Abraham and Lot. So Abraham says to him, let there be no quarrel between your herdsman and my herdsman and he said, between me and you. So you choose. If you go right, I go left. You go left, I go right. And they disconnect. And they disconnect. Genesis 13, 8. Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. And what is Abraham's motivation? For we are what? Brothers. Come on, say brothers. brothers. So is Abraham attempting to preserve peace? Yes, he is. Lot shows no inclination to resolve the matter. Lot is quite content to abide in an environment of strife relationally. Abraham steps in and said, no, this is, cannot be true of brothers. Abraham knows the principle, I believe, by revelation. That once there's tension and division in brotherhood, whatever seeds we sow will not thrive because the peace is disturbed. This, the power of the seed becomes neutralized because now the environment is tense. Nothing spiritually can work there. Eh? Nothing spiritually can thrive there. So Abraham suggests a departure, parting of ways. When you see Abraham is not being harsh on Lot. Abraham is being wise. He is saying, and this is for someone here tonight, but some of us have some relationships that are quite content to maintain the relationship, but in an atmosphere of strife and tension. Right? And he suggests, no lot, you better go. Because my destiny in God that was given to me in Genesis 12, just the previous verse, not so? God said, in blessing, I will bless you. You'll be a father of many nations. Whoever blesses you, I will bless Whoever curses you, I will. Didn't Lot think? Didn't Lot hear that? 
doesn't he realize Abraham becomes the point from which blessing is going to flow to me? But he's willing to vacate that. He's willing to leave that. Right? When Abraham sees a disestimation of grace in Lot, he actually suggests to him, you better go. You go left, I go right. Right? Right? Do you know, by the way, Lot would end up where? You see, he saw the plains of the Jordan, I think to the west were well, east were well watered everywhere. He chose by his natural sight. And he made a, a carnal decision. He didn't even, out of honor for Abraham, give Abraham the first option. Even there he shows dishonor and disregard. Right? And he chooses what he thinks is the best land. But the Bible says in choosing the best land, he positioned his tent. Where? Toward Sodom. So his tent, which speaks of a household, was positioned away from fathering grace in Abram to a wicked context. By the time the Lord destroyed Sodom, watch. By the time the Lord would destroy Sodom. Remember he sent the angel. He sent the angel, still having mercy on Lot, to warn Lot, his wife, his two daughters, and their two husbands to get out of the city before I destroy the, the city. When the angel came to Sodom, where was Lot? The Bible says Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom. Who sits in gates of cities? Only elders. By the time Lot positioned his tent towards Sodom, in Genesis 13. By the time it came to the Lord to destroy the city, the culture of Sodom had so swallowed Lot in that Lot became a leader in the city, sitting in the gates. But he was powerless to influence the culture of the city with righteousness because he disconnected from a patriarchal father with grace that would have given him the power to contend with the enemy in the gates. Yeah? When you don't know who your gate is, the walls of Jerusalem have gates, spiritual fathers. When you don't know who your gate's in, whatever gate in society you are positioned in, you'll be powerless to influence that realm because you've disconnected from grace. Yes? And you know what the Bible says? In the middle of the story, Genesis 14, Chedaloma, remember? Led an alliance of three other Persian empires, four kings, and they ran rampage over the whole of the then known world of Canaan or Palestine. And they, they, they took over several cities, five in total, I think. Five in total, because those five kings would rally to, to go up against the four, remember? Alliance of five versus an alliance of, of four. Chedaloma, together with three others, four of them, overrode every city, including Sodom. Where's Lot? In? This was before Sodom is destroyed now. In Sodom. And they took everybody captive, right? Every, including Lot. The Bible says one of the captors managed to get free and he comes running back to Abraham to say the following. He comes running back to Abraham to say that your nephew Lot has been taken captive. 
Now read Genesis 14, 14. Genesis 14, 14. When Abram heard that his brother, or his relative, this is the New King James for this one. This particular verse, New King James. When Lot, or when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants, whom he born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is the north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods, verse 16. And he also brought again who? Come on, say it loud. His brother Lot. Even though Lot cannot see him as a father, he cannot relate to Lot as a son. The best he can relate to Lot to is as a brother. And he still respects him as a brother. Don't reduce the value of others that can't see what you represent in Christ. And don't marginalize them for that. See within them that they are still of the same alos. The same, they still have the, the grace of God, the same essence of the nature of God in them as you do. So he responds to him not as a son. He's still relating to him as a brother. And he brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the woman uh, and, the, and the people. Now the Bible says, I won't read the entire thing. The Bible says he goes up and he slaughters Chedaloma, Abram. He has an alliance of four major Persian empires. Abram has only got 318 trained servants. Everyone say trained servants. Uh, the Hebrew word there is ruch, R-U-Q. It means those in whom he poured himself into. So when it says Abram with 318 trained servants born in his house, these were not like slaves. These were literally like sons to him. Why do I know that? Remember out of patience, when he had a conversation to the Lord, he had not born a son, even though God promised him. He said, take Eleazar. Remember? Abram said to the Lord, take Eleazar, my chief of the 380, my chief servant, and make him my heir. Abraham did not view them as servants. Abraham regarded them as sons. They were born in his house. And listen carefully. Over years, he poured himself into them. When it says trained servants, it's ruch. It's those whom Abraham literally emptied all of the grace that is in him into these people. So when he attacks four major Persian empires to rescue Lot. Now you don't play with the Persians. These are not some lightweights. Persian empires in that day were vociferous. They were known for territorial conquest. They had a pride and an arrogance even about their military prowess. It's not just one. It's an alliance of four, four major empires, and all you got is yourself and 318 men, sons, Born in your house, together with three brothers, Hebron, Mamre, and I forget the other gentleman, Ana. Right? The Bible says he took 318 together with three brothers. Everyone say brothers. brothers. See the power of brotherhood and family can topple 
the most powerful empire stacked up against you. The family composition of the church is its military might. You can be little in number, but if you're building by family and brotherhood, you will take anything. It's not how many you have. It's how strong is the spirit of family. How strong. I like what it says. Watch, 318, born in his house. Sons he poured his life into. And he couples that with three distinct individuals which are named, which he calls my brothers. And who are you going to rescue? A brother. Can you see how this thing plays out? He slaughters Chedaloma. I would love to have seen this. When I get to glory one day, I'm going to say to the Lord, play me back this one. I want to actually see this thing happen. How on earth did Abram rescue Lot? I don't want to see Jericho on the walls in the Red Sea. For me, that's, 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 that's understandable. I want to see this. I want to see this. I want to see how does a man... Attack four major world empires with just the principle of family and brotherhood. And you not only rescue Lot, in the process of rescue, you decapitate the main king in the process. Don't play with Abram. He's bad in a good way. <laughs> and he rescues Lot. You know, in the process of rescuing Lot, what happens? You see, Cain kills Abel. Abraham could have said, when that captive came to tell him, your nephew is taken captive, he could have said, well, good for him. He left grace. He left me. He dishonored me. He got what was coming to him. Thank you, Lord. I'll never see you again. Bye-bye. Right? But you know what he does? He, he goes on what seems like a suicidal mission. This is mission highly impossible. It's not just mission impossible. This is mission highly impossible. If you were betting, I guarantee you, most of you here would put your money on the Persians. There's no way in, in God's earth that this guy is going to be successful against all these odds stacked up against him. No way. Right? But, you see, he slaughters Chedaloma and he comes back with the spoil of war. He's a multi-billionaire now, Abram. He was already prosperous. He's coming back with the spoil of war from five major cities, including Sodom and... Remember when he came back, the king of Sodom met him to ask for the goods, remember? Typically... I don't want to see Jericho on the walls in the Red Sea. <laughs> you see, you need to hear that again. For me, that's, 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 that's understandable. I want to see it. Hallelujah. <laughs> now listen carefully. Abram goes to rescue a brother. The principle of war in that culture is this. Any king who topples an enemy and in the process gets the booty from the war, he becomes the rightful owner of that booty, the spoil of war, by virtue of the fact that he played a critical role in its recovery. Right? So when the king of Sodom was adamant to give him back the, the goods and the people, remember? Abraham could have insisted by 
write that these now belong to, to me. But he proves that I, I can willingly let go of things because things don't possess me. I possess things. People become possessed by the things they possess. Right? Right? You know what? The, before he even met Sodom, who does he go to? The king of Sodom. Once he rescues Lot and he retrieves the spoil of war. Who, what is Abraham's priority? Melchizedek. The first order of business in Genesis 14 is, where is my Melchizedek? I will give him 10%. Now Melchizedek got very wealthy that day. He gets 10% of all the spoils from five major cities. Right? <laughs> Melchizedek is smiling that day. Abraham comes to bless him with a tithe. He, he prays for Abraham. Blessed be Abraham and blessed be Abraham of God most high and blessed be God most high who has given what? Victory over to you over all your enemies. Abraham knows, hey, I'm only this victorious because God has given me the victory. So I will honor the representation of God in my world. My spiritual father in the Lord. Melchizedek with this, with this tithe. Okay. Now was Abraham intending to get rich? Yes or no? No. What was his motivation in attacking Chedorlaomer and the, ally, the other allied kings? What was the motivation? The rescue of a brother got him wealth. He was not pursuing wealth. He was pursuing the rescue of a brother. He had no intention of getting all this booty. His only intention was, I'm going to rescue and not just a brother. It's that brother that dishonors me. It's that brother that disrespects me. It's that brother that cannot see what I represent in the kingdom of God. It's that brother that is quite content to maintain strife and tension in relationships even with me. And yet God calls me to rescue him. What is Abraham manifesting? Image and likeness. When he prioritizes the value of a brother. He prioritizes the value of a brother. Let me just say this. It is only a fatherly principle that knows and is able to teach the value of a brother. You will never get these things right that I'm trying to teach you if you do not allow the fathering grace to show to you what the value of your brother, particularly your lot brothers. Huh? And a lot of you have a lot of lot brothers. <laughs> You see, I love James, right? And let's say if James is in some trouble here and he phones, right? I don't know if it's possible, can you help me? Let's say financially, I'm, I'm a bit of a fix. I'll have no problems making huge sacrifices. Why? I love him. We have a wonderful relationship. But he's not a lot. I'm talking about the lot, brother. <laughs> that God calls you to rescue as a precipitator of the favor of God upon your life. When you, watch, when you seem to go on what seems like a suicidal mission, Abraham has much to lose if this is unsuccessful. You know that? But what is at the back of Abraham's mind? This battle takes place in Genesis 14, right? 
In Genesis 13, Lot separates from him. But in Genesis 12, he's got a prophetic promise. God spoke to him. God said to him, I will bless you. Make you a great nation. Anyone blesses you, I bless. Anyone curses, you I curse. Abraham is not just functioning arbitrarily. He's functioning based upon the power of a prophetic word. He's got no issue that I will not be successful in this battle. Because he, he knows that God is not a man that he should lie. I want to challenge. I feel this very strongly tonight. God is calling some of you to reach out to brothers that disesteem you. It could be family members. And the Lord says to you tonight, if you can prioritize the welfare of a brother, I will give you access to wealth. It's not wealth you seek. It's the welfare of a brother. And when you prioritize brotherliness, the ground, you see, all of creation respected Abram in this battle. Every factor was positioned favorably to allow him to slaughter Cheddar Loma. Because the entire earth recognized this battle he will win. Because he prioritizes a, a brother. Amen. He prioritizes a brother. You know at that stage should not Lot have re-established his relationship with, with Abraham? I would think so. But Lot is so... Blind. The word lot means veiled. Right? Veiled. Right? Do you know the lot? <laughs> the word lot also means myrrh. Lot means three things. Veiled, covered, and myrrh. Do you know what myrrh is? Myrrh is an image in the scripture of bitterness. Lot harbored bitterness in his heart towards Abraham for whatever reason I don't know. But let me just say this to you. If, you. if you entertain bitterness, it will blind you. The bitterness in the heart of Lot caused his eyes to be veiled as to what Abram truly represented as a man sent from God to him. Right? I want to encourage you. You know, bitterness is such a terrible thing. And Hebrews 12, 15, just quickly if you put it on, Hebrews 12, 15. I have a fairly long teaching on bitterness on my website, but just to, I just feel the Lord saying this to us tonight. Listen carefully. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of what? You can fail the NASB if you can. NASB says you come short of the, of the grace of God. Lest any, see to it. Tell your neighbor, see to it. When the Bible says see to it, you must see to it. Right? It says be diligent about this. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes what? Trouble and by it many people get defiled. Right? Many people get defiled. Lot allowed bitterness to cause blindedness to him as to what Abram truly represented. Right? Abram on the other hand Although Lot was so blind as to what he represented, had no problems using the entirety of the resources in his house to go on a mission to rescue a, a brother. Okay? To rescue a brother. But Lot could not reciprocate, even to Abram as a brother, never mind a spiritual father. 
I mean, if a fatherly figure in your world has this prophecy over his life, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And if you are right there and you got your family, isn't one and one is equal to two? Doesn't it make sense that you must maintain connection with this person that has a blessing that all families are blessed? Yeah. <laughs> what happened to Lot's family, by the way? His wife turns back, looking at Sodom, turned into a pillar of salt. When the angel warned him to get out of Sodom, he warned his sons-in-law to get out. But his, the Bible says it seemed to his sons-in-law like he was joking. You see, when you disconnect from grace, your, 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 your words lose power and influence. You're sitting in the gates of Sodom. You can't influence your context with righteousness. You can't even influence your own family with a divine warning from God. You talk, they think you're jesting. Right? Your power of your words lose impact, lose influence. Only your wife and your two daughters leave you or believe you and they go with you. The two daughters leave their husbands. The husbands die in the judgment of Sodom. They go, the wife what? The, the wife looks back. You see, it's not just when it says she looks back. It's not like, you know, the whole imagery is that Sodom had so gotten into her spirit that she longed after it. Right? So in you all the families of the earth are blessed, but not for you lot. Your sons-in-law die. Your wife experiences divine judgment. And you, when you left Abraham, chose the best land everywhere. But now after leaving Sodom, where are you? You find yourself in a cave from, some, from choosing the best land everywhere. The Bible says Lot finds himself in a cave with these two daughters who make him drunk, commit incest with him, have sexual relationships with their father because they thought there's no men on the earth left for us. Two sons are produced, Moab and Ammon. They would become the Moabites and the Ammonites. And the Moab means who needs a father? What father? Lot produced the spirit that, despi that despises the need for spiritual fathering because he in his own lifetime sowed that seed toward Abraham. And the seed he sown in dishonor towards Abraham reaped a harvest in a whole nation called Moab and Ammon. Right? And instead of experiencing in you all the families of the earth are blessed, his life ends up a wreck. I feel very strongly tonight. This is a warning message for many of us. Nurture and maintain divine relationships with spiritual father and with spiritual sons. I never make the point yet. I was about to say to you, it takes a fathering grace to show a brother the value of a brother. Remember the prodigal son? Well, when he came back to his father's house, remember? The older son took umbrage at the fact that his father ordered this lavish feast, right? And when the older son spoke to the father, the older son said to him, your son has, has, has taken advantage of you. I'm just paraphrasing. Your son has dishonored you. Your son wasted your inheritance or his inheritance. Your son wasted your wealth. 
He never ever called the prodigal son my brother. Whenever he spoke to his father, he said your son. Not once did he ever say my brother has come back. In talking to the father, he consistently say your son, your son. But what did the father, how did the father say? He didn't say my son. He said no, your brother was lost and has now returned. It takes a father to educate a son as to the value of a brother. Left to himself, a brother never fully appreciates the value of a, another brother unless that brother is configured by the view of his father towards his other son. Yeah? So I love James because I see the way Pastor Thamo loves James. I would still love James powerfully, I think, even if Pastor Thamo wasn't around. All I'm saying is, the fathering grace over the family helps to see, helps one brother to appreciate the value of the other brother. Huh? So remember the book of Philemon, Philemon in the, in the New Testament? Philemon was an unproductive servant. Remember? Not Philemon, Onesimus. Philemon was the business owner. Onesimus was a worker in his employer. Onesimus uh, prematurely disconnected from Philemon and he vacated, he left. Right? In the process, he encounters the ministry of Paul. Paul writes a letter called the book of Philemon. He writes a letter to Philemon to say to Philemon, now your servant, now he's no longer a servant, it's your brother. The nature of the relationship has changed. I'm not just sending back to you a servant. I'm sending back to you now your brother. He was once unprofitable, Paul says, but now he has become a profitable servant. It always takes a father to upgrade the view of a brother towards his other brother. If you take Paul out of the equation, Onesimus and Philemon probably would not have reconciled. Right? So tell you never thank God for fathering. You see this thing about favor? You want the favor of God? You want a manifestation of the favor of God upon you? I want to encourage you, harness the power of brotherhood. And brotherhood, the integrity of the, the quality of relationships amongst brothers is entrenched by the fatherly view of his sons that every brother must have one towards the other. That's why unto us a son is given. Child is born. The government will be upon his shoulders his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god what everlasting father prince of peace you need the everlasting father to establish prince of peace but in the son the son is called everlasting father so every son must have the perspective the name of father imprinted in the son so when the son functions with a fatherly mentality in reference to other sons, he will deal with other sons as the father would deal with the son, his brother. Hmm? Where is your brother Cain? You know why Cain succumbed, I believe, to the disregard and dishonor of Abel? was because Adam vacated his fatherly position when he disconnected from God his father. And as a father, he could not provide Cain with a view of value towards Abel. 
It's very important. I train myself. You know, some of my sons in my, in my church back home, I got some delinquent people there, right? And I'm extremely patient with them. And my more mature sons will tell me, hey, Randolph, you, you got patience that we don't have. If we had our way, we'll not allow the brother in the building. But you are so inviting, you have time. You, what am I educating them about? I'm saying I am the principle of father that regulates your perception about your brother. Look and follow my example as how I relate to them and let the name of father be in you, son. And when you do that, you will harness the aspect of, of peace, prince of peace. Right? Peaceful relationships. And in that environment, peace for the seed. Zechariah 8. There will be peace for every seed. Come on, tell someone, peace for the seed. Don't, don't even sow another financial offering. If you're not going to sow it from a heart environment of absolute commitment to the brotherhood. And peace for the, peace for the seed. Amen. Amen. Are you getting this tonight? Yes. This came out very prophetic tonight. There's some things I'm learning even as I'm speaking. Be honest. These, some of these things are not in my notes tonight. This is very prophetic for, for me and for us today. Our next breakthrough, I'm submitting to us, your next breakthrough is reliant upon the rescue of a brother that disesteems you. Send that email. Make that call. Check as to the welfare of your brother. Use your resources. Make sacrifices to ensure his rescue from whatever context. And see what kind of spoil God brings back to you. Amen. See what kind of, of spoil God will bring back to you. Another example is Jacob. Remember Jacob defrauded his brother Esau out of the birthright? Yeah. Do you know it was prophesied over the boys that at their birth, the older will serve the younger? Who came out first of the womb? Esau was first born in time. But who was first born in rank from God's perspective? Jacob. Because when the twins were born, Jacob came, uh, Esau came out first. But there was a prophecy that went out that said this, the older will serve the younger. So right at the birth, there was evidence that already Jacob was first born from God's perspective. Right? Knowing that, he should not have attempted to, to, attempted to firstly, watch care. This is, becomes very tricky. When his brother was hungry in the field, remember? And his brother said, give me some stew or that pot of lentils. What did Jacob say to him? What do you have that you can give me in exchange for the stew. And Jacob said, give me your, your birthright. He should not have taken advantage of the weakness of Esau. He is displaying at that point no regard for the brotherhood. The conniver, the deceiver in Jacob, instinctually wants to manipulate the weakness of a brother to access what is truly his in God. Now let me be blunt with us. If God promised you something, you don't have to manipulate, wheel, don't have to connive or deceive to attain it. Especially the deception and the manipulation of brothers. Yeah. 
in the process of attaining spiritual destiny. God, you know, people say, I don't care how I get it, I will get it. No, God does care how you get it. Yeah? People say the end justifies, or the means justifies the end. It doesn't work. You will pay for that deception, Jacob. He should have just been comfortable. Okay? He should have just said, I know at our birth, it was promised to me, firstborn status. So birthright is mine. By all accounts in my natural world, it does not seem to be forthcoming. But I will be solely reliant upon what God said, and I will not attempt to manipulate environments to get the thing fulfilled. And in the process, disesteem a, a brother. You see, once you start one scheme, it opens the door to the next scheme. Because even when your aged father, who was at your birth, and forgot seemingly the prophecy about you. And at the time of the impartation of the double portion blessing, doesn't call for you, but calls for Esau. You then, with the help of your mother, take matters again into your own hand, and you dress like Esau, hairy. You, you pretend with his voice, to now, not just to deceive a father, you now deceive your brother, you're now deceiving a... A father, right? And so he accesses birthright through fraudulent means, right? He goes on a 20-year dislocated, dislodged environment in Uncle Laban's house. And do you know what? I don't know where it is. It's in my notes somewhere. I'll just tell you. When he realized I need to leave Laban after 20 years, and he left late at night without Laban's awareness. And he left, remember? The next day, Laban realizes he's not around and he pursues Jacob, remember? When he catches up with Laban, with, with, with Jacob, Laban says this to Jacob, I have seen all these years while you were with me how you longed for your father's house. For 20 years, Jacob was dislocated, longing for his father's house. It's only in the house of a father that patriarchal prophetic promises are going to be fulfilled. Not in the house of an uncle. Right? But to be re... Watch, what is the process of Jacob's reintegration into Jacob's house? What is the obstacle standing in his path? Come on. The reconciliation with Esau. He has to cross that factor. Right? And remember, he, uh, he wrestles all night before he would encounter Esau. He wrestles all night with the, with the angel. And what's his motivation? I'm not letting you go. The angel was the representation of the Lord himself, right? I'm not going to let you go until you what? But isn't, didn't he receive blessing from his father? But he knows this is not going to work because I defrauded a brother and a father in process carnally. So now I have to seek it out for myself in an all-night wrestling match with angelic hosts. Blessed, right? Hipping the power potential is now released. That night, he crosses what? He crosses a little river called the Jabbok. The word Jabbok means myself empty. 
until Jacob can empty himself of his pride and his deception. There's no hope of him esteeming his brother. And you know what? When he meets Esau, he bows seven times to Esau. I've been speaking and subjection. He mutually, he calls Esau, my Lord. He displays such humility. And the Bible says, he saw Esau's face like he sees the face of, come on, I decree God divine representation in you and I'm willing to submit not to you. I bow to the representation of God. Esau, how many? Esau had 400 men, valiant men. Each boy would become a tribe, making up the complement of national Israel. So Esau is about to wipe out prophetic promise. Right? Whom the promised Messiah to the line would come. There's a lot at stake here. And what seals the deal? The changed attitude in Jacob towards his brother. You know when he's this, they whipped. And Jacob sends a whole lot of gifts. Watch. Everyone say seed. Say offerings. He gives offerings. But offerings given... From a heart that's in peace. They weep. They hug. And the soldiers intended to kill Jacob. Esau now says to Jacob, wherever you go, these guys will escort you and keep you safe. So what the enemy has intended for evil, God turns for your protection. But the missing factor, the key, the link, is the changed attitude toward a brother. Don't violate principle relationally in your pursuit of wanting to fulfill your destiny. He wanted this birthright at any cost, right? Pursue my calling, pursue my firstborn status. But in the process, violated relational principles. And it didn't work. Right? I've got several examples, but time is far gone. Okay? Time to wrap up. When did God turn the prosperity of Job? Job 42 and verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when? When he prayed for his friends. Right? Can you see that? The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his brothers. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. You know Job's story, right? Now these brothers were not like Bruce. They were close, but they misunderstood Job. They falsely accused him that he's harboring sin. Therefore, all of these negative things have happened in his family. Remember? And you know what? God was about to, now this is Job 42. This is right at the end of the book. God is, I can picture God, right? Just let me dramatize this. I know we're apostolic, but let me be with Pentecostal, right? He, he, like God is at, like in heaven looking at this whole thing on earth. And God is saying to Job, I want to restore you twice all that you have. I'm just waiting to see something in you that's going to turn my heart. I'm waiting to see your attitude in reference to everyone that misunderstood you. To everyone that falsely accused you. Your closest brothers or your friends. And when the Bible says, Job actually started to bless and pray for his friends. Then the text says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job twice of everything he had. 
This was the last test for Job. If he failed this test, there would be no restoration. I am saying, and of many other examples here, God has unveiled this to me. A major key for apostolic people to go into the next dimension of financial prosperity is going to be powerful brotherliness, brotherhood, nurturing and having the correct estimation of your brother in Christ. Loving the family of God. The respect and honor for spiritual parentage. Who configure our mindsets in reference to, to everybody else. I want to encourage you. Your attitude towards your brother becomes the reason for your breakthrough. Remember, what's them? Their names, those twins. Born to Tamar, Zerah, and Perez, right? You find some in my notes. This is our last example. I have many here, but we'll be here all night, right? Genesis 38, last example. Then I'm going to release you to go practice the stuff. <laughs> Genesis 38, 27. The time came for her labor. This is Tamar, right? She got twins in a womb. Verse 28. When she was in labor, one put out the hand. So the first boy comes out, firstborn, right? And the midwife, administrating the delivery, she ties a scarlet thread, a red ribbon, right, around his hand. And the midwife said, this one came out first. It was very important, especially when twins are involved, to establish who's firstborn. Because the firstborn had double portion of the father's estate. The rights of the primogeniture. The right of the firstborn would be on the firstborn, right? So the first boy pushes out just his hand out of the womb of his mom. The midwife ties a red ribbon, a scarlet thread, and the, wood, the midwife says loud, this one came out first. Come on, say it with me. Say, this one came out first. Now say it like you're the midwife. Hey, it's a drama, right? Pregnant women, there's blood everywhere, water. Ladies screaming, yeah. There's a battle for firstborn. The race is on in the womb. This brew, his hand is out. Yes, I made it. I broke through. Scarlet thread. The midwife says, What? This one came out first. But the next verse says this. But it came about as he drew back his hand. So he decides, Not now, I'm going back into the womb. Right? His brother, the other guy, came out. Right? But he got the scarlet thread and he's back in the womb and his brother comes out. Now the midwife again shouts. Can you see the exclamation mark there? What does an exclamation mark tell you in grammatical usage of English? It's loud. <laughs> it's exclamatory. She again, like on the top of her voice, what a breach have you made for yourself? She's talking to this other guy that's coming out now. She's asking him a question. What a breach. This is truly a question. So she names that boy Perez. Perez means what? Breakthrough. She says, how, some versions say, how have you broken through? What a breach you made for yourself. Right? Then it says, verse 30, Afterwards, his brother, the other guy with the scarlet thread, he comes afterwards, right? Comes in second. 
Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and they called his name Zerah. One of the meanings of Zerah is seed. Seed. If you asked Perez, like the midwife asked him, how have you broken through? He will tell you, my brother was my seed that led to my breakthrough. He opened the womb for me, for me to break out. A seed went before me, but that seed wasn't just a seed. It was the embodiment of my brother who broke out that led to my breakthrough. You must become the seed for your brother's breakthrough. Hmm? Become the zera for someone's peres. Do you know what? There's a, a lovely text uh, in, 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 the, in the New Testament in, where Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. I promise you, this is the last one, right? 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. All right? I'm only here this week and I'm going back to Durban, so I might as well get in as much as we possibly can. 2 Corinthians 2.12 says this. When, it, when Paul is talking, when I came to Troas with the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Now, who likes open doors? Come on. Come on, we all like open doors. Paul says, what's open for me? A door. Who likes to walk through open doors? Yeah? I like open doors. I don't know about you. If you like closed doors, that's your business. I like open doors. God must open doors. I want to break through to the next realm. But the next verse is, I had no rest in my spirit. Find, not finding who? Not finding Titus who? My brother. Not finding Titus my brother. But taking leave of them, I went to Macedonia. You see, Paul was not so ecstatic about the open door as many Pentecostals would be. Wow, open door. Paul is saying, yes, open door is good. But this door was not meant for me to go through alone. It was meant for me to go through with Titus. Certain doors God opens to you that are not meant only for you to go through alone, but they are meant for you to find a brother and take the brother with you through the open door that God has made for you. The only thing that biblically I have found that should cause unrest to a son of God's spirit. What does he say? I had no rest where? For my spirit. Not being able to locate Titus. Although Titus, he would say he's my son. Yeah, remember? Titus and Timothy are true sons of Paul. But he's talking about his attitude for every son to a father, he's also his brother. And every brother to a son, every father to a son is also his brother. Paul says, this door was not meant to walk, for me to walk through singularly, but corporately with my brother. Right? And let me just say, I believe that's why God gave the open door to Paul. Because he knew he's brotherly focused. And the open door to him is not just for him. He desires to bring others with him into the open door. I submit to you today, God will open doors for you when in your heart you are inclined not just to walk through those open doors alone, but to find your brother and take your brother too. Doors will open. Who wants open doors? Some of us want open doors, but we got no regard for brothers. 
No doors will open. Hmm? Do you want to be favored? Yeah? Last scripture. <laughs> Psalm 102, quickly. Verse 13. I promise you, really last one. <laughs> and everyone says, say yes, I have faith to believe. <laughs> oh, he of little faith. <laughs> Verse 13, I think. Verse 13. For you will arise and have compassion on Zion. For the time to be gracious to her, the appointed time has come. Put the New King James Version. Or the King James is fine. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to do what? To favor. Hin translated grace, right? The set time to favor Zion has come. Now who believes it's the set time for your favor? But the next verse is this. Verse 14. For your servants take pleasure in what? As stones. Who are the stones of Zion? People. Brothers. The church is made up of living stones. Favor only comes to those who take pleasure in the stones of Zion. If your attitude towards your brothers is correct, I promise you, you the, the, the favor, intended favor of God on Zion will fall on you because the Lord says of you, you actually delight and you take pleasure in her stones. Very last scripture. Psalm 122. Okay. Very last one. Then we're out of here. Psalm 122, I think it is. I was glad, not mad. I was glad. Some people say I was mad. <laughs> I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Verse 2. Our feet will stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded like a city that is what? This idea of every joint supplying itself, being knit together, right? This idea of family and solid family culture in Zion. The city of the living God. Okay? Um, whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the Lord. Next. For there the Lord sets the thrones of judgment. Sorry, the, the thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of, of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. If you love Jerusalem, which is a representation of Zion, the body of Christ, the descending bride, according to Revelation, then if you take pleasure in her, you will prosper. Next verse, quickly. Peace within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For my brethren or my brothers, everyone say brothers. brothers. Notice the heart of the psalmist here. For my brethren or my brothers and my companions' sake, I now say, peace be within you, Jerusalem. You see, when your heart is wired to engender to keep the bonds of unity in the spirit, and when you are focused that all your brothers and companions in Zion are are peaceful and have an abiding peace in them. God says there will be prosperity in your palaces. In your palaces. 
Remember Amasai. When he came to David, what did he say? Amasai, when everyone was leaving Saul to come to the camp of David, men from Benjamin and Judah came to him. Not so? One particular gentleman, the Bible says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Amasai. And he said this to David. David warned them. David was very reluctant just to receive anyone. Because you don't, you, you don't know whether you're receiving spies. Right? And so he said to them, you guys come to me. If you come and your heart is set to betray me to my enemies, may God deal with you. Then the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon a man called Amasai. And Amasai said this to David. Oh, David, son of Jesse, we are yours. Peace, peace to you. And peace to everybody else here that has come to help you. His, his intent was not just to foster David's peace. He said, peace to you, David. But also peace to every other brother here that's with you. These, these would become the valiant men, the mighty 30 that David had. Right? What, what, what is the attitude? We have not just come to ensure David's peace. We have come to ensure the peace of every other brother here that has come as a spiritual son to support David. Peace to you and peace to everyone that helps you. And what the Bible says, when David saw that, the Bible says David made them leaders or captains in the band. Positions of prominence and promotion comes to those who are intent of ensuring the peace and the welfare of the brotherhood. Come stand with me. Tell your neighbor, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Question. Why was David, how did David land up killing Goliath? And by killing Goliath, that would propel his pathway to kingship. What was the motivation? How did he get there? The Bible says his father Jesse sent him with food to go minister to the welfare of his brothers. Right? The attitude of David is my whole intent, yes, Jesse has anointed me king. I'm not even pursuing the fulfillment of my kingship. My whole intent is out of love for my father, Jesse, and the request of him to nurture his other sons, I go with resource to bless the brothers. When your attitude is poised towards nurturing the brotherhood, God will ensure he raises you to key contexts that activate your pathway to the fulfillment of your destiny in God. He was not looking to kill any giant. He was only looking to feed the to feed the brothers. Right? Similarly with Joseph. Jacob sent Joseph with some cheese, raisins, etc. to serve his brothers who were at Shechem. Remember? So he goes there and he finds they're not there. 
and he inquires of, from one of the brothers, where are my brothers? And the guy says to him, they are not here, they are at Dothan. If he came to Shechem and he said, well, my brothers aren't here, my father said I must come to Shechem. You see, he did not operate in the request of his father in the law, legalistically, of his father's request. Because when he came to Shechem and found them not there, he could have went back. But he still inquires as to where they were. And then he goes a further step to Dothan to minister to them. When they see him, they connive evil against him and plot to sell him. To kill him first and later to sell him. And that would land him where? In Egypt. And where would he rule? But what was the initial spur? The initial motivation is I'm seeking nothing else but to fulfill my father's wishes to ensure that my brothers are well nurtured. If that's your attitude, even when brothers, listen carefully, because some of you are going to leave this building, don't be discouraged when those you reach out to respond to you negatively. Even if they deliberately misrepresent your attempts at reconciliation, God will ensure, because of your motivation, that what they intend for evil will actually work for your good. Everyone say peace for the seed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You call us to love the brotherhood, to love spiritual fathers, and to have a fatherly perspective towards all brothers. Tonight you've given us a key as this would be pivotal for our next levels of breakthrough. Come on, lift your hands. I pray great grace and peace would be imparted to everybody now to seek the welfare of their brothers, to ensure that there's peace for the seed. Father, I pray great courage, great determination to obey your word, to honor your representation in the brothers, not to kill the representation of Christ in them, but to honor and respect them. For some of us to go and search and rescue the lots. And I know in this process, Father, you will greatly give them strength from the heavens. So on your behalf, I bless your sons today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless you.